Welcome, everybody, to the Future Belongs to Readers podcast. I am one of your hosts, Charlie. I'm joined by my regular host, Miguel and Haley, today. And we have a very special guest, the man who started this podcast, the man who started this company that all of us work for. We have Mr. Nathan Barry with us. Welcome, Nathan. Thanks for having me on the show. On your show, really? It's only been like 50 <laughs> episodes since I've been on. <laughs> Is that saying something? Do you not want me here? Welcome back to your podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for so- taking such good care of it while I've been gone. And now that I'm back, I'd like to make it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, we're not going back to. We love our streaming service that we're using. We like our new format. You don't get to change it back. <laughs> you have leveled up the show. You all have leveled up the show so much. So, well done. Well, we're going to talk about um, Twitter today, one of my favorite topics, and um, Nathan's going to share about how he's been growing on Twitter, specifically through the use of threads recently as well. But before we get into all that stuff, let's do our first segment, Have You Heard? Share some news items. You want to kick us off, Miguel? Yeah, sure. I'll go first. So Meta is charging content creators basically, or they're talking about charging them almost 50% to sell VR content. So despite the fact that they complain about Apple's 30% fee, like everybody does, they essentially will charge 25% a cut Hmm. off a digital content that's intended for their Horizon Worlds, which is like their AR thing. and Metaverse. Right, yeah. And um, this is actually a cut from funds that have already been charged 30% from a platform fee from their Quest store, which is owned by them. So essentially they will receive 47.5% of the value of content that is sold there, while creators just earn like 52.5%. So kind of a little bit of the pot calling the kettle black uh, as far as fees goes. That's pretty insane. That is a high fee. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That goes to show when you own, like have the monopoly on the platform and they don't really have a ton of competition in the VR space right now, then they're just like, this is what it is. Yeah. Wild. Although I've also heard people talking about the fact that they don't have a whole lot of users <laughs> either. <laughs> and so it's like they're thinking about the revenue before they've really thought about the the whole adoption mm-hmm. of this. You'd think they'd make it super, super low, mm-hmm. get a bunch of content and people mm-hmm. bought into the platform and then crank it up. But I guess not. Apparently not. Nope. I wonder if they're they're going to fund some of that content, though, because most of these mm-hmm. platforms trying to move into the creator space right now are trying to fund or they're like paying creators to go create on their new thing. You know, the same way that Twitch and others were like paying. What was Microsoft's streaming service? I can't even remember. I have no idea. Anyway, but they were paying creators, right? To leave something else and come on. Like here's a million dollar advance. Yeah. So maybe Facebook is like, here's the broader thing, but then we're we're funding, you know, creators. They did that with Facebook gaming, which is apparently a thing. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I could see them doing that for this, too. That's a good point. R.I.P. Farmville. (laughs) (laughs) Haley, what you got? I've got two today, actually. I forgot about one and then I remembered it. And I actually care more about the one I remembered. So I'll drop a link for the first one. TikTok actually came out with uh, their have a private beta of Effect House that was released publicly today. And it's basically an AI tool for TikTok. So because we all need to live in a different reality. So go check that out. That actually popped up on my LinkedIn profile. And I was like, well, this is kind of interesting and also super weird, but still relevant. The second thing is that I actually care about. And I I might have the dates a little bit wrong, but a large majority right now of Etsy's 
sellers are going on strike because Etsy increased their fees 5% to 6.5%. And 5% was already astronomically high. So if you know me, you've listened to this podcast before, I do talk about small businesses a lot in like the creator space. I love, love that industry so much. I have way too many ceramics to prove that. But all that said, don't shop on Etsy this week. And if you're a seller, go on strike this week because that is an astronomical increase for creators who are already trying to, you know, their profit margins aren't extremely high. So that's my second one. Presumably they're just pushing that on. Sellers are just going to push that onto the consumer and just lock up all their prices to match that 1.5%. So I think ultimately the people, ultimately the customer pays the price for that, but also Obviously, they ultimately do pay the price because sticker shock, fewer people, mm-hmm. fewer sales, all that. So, yeah, eh, not great. I mean, there's a ton of articles out there where you can go read all of the different percentages that, you know, whether it's Shopify or, or you know, whoever. And that they're like the different fee structures and Etsy is by far the highest. Like that is... That's just insane to me. And so anyways, I'm I'm really anxious to see what actually happens as a result of it because there are so many small business owners that drive the vast majority of their revenue using Etsy. So I'm really interested to see if this is going to push people off of that platform to build their own e-commerce sites, what that's actually going to look like and how that's going to change the shape of, you know, the handmade creator space. And even, you know, in our case for for Etsy sellers that do that sell digital goods, if Mm. digital goods are like their primary driver, right? Like they could easily move off onto a different platform. They could move on to ConvertKit and they could save, you know, what, three and a half percent. So... I think I'm really interested to see how this drives or how this this changes kind of that space a little bit. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things in there too about like what we always talk about, the value of owning the access to your audience. And if you're relying solely on Etsy search results to reach your audience, then that's tough. Yeah. Like you've got to be building up that brand and audience of your own. Yeah. Nathan, everybody, is our first guest to bring along his own Have You Heard item. So what have you got for us, Nathan? <laughs> okay. Have you heard about Dolly? From OpenAI? A little bit, but tell us more. (laughs) So Sam Altman, who uh, has done a bunch of startups, was the president of Y Combinator for a while, is now CEO of OpenAI. And he posted this on Twitter the other day. And he said, have an idea for Dolly. Reply with a caption and I'll generate 20 or so. And so I'm like, okay, what is Dolly? And so in here you get, I don't know, can I screen share? Will that work? Yeah, I think I can. Oh, I don't know that. It, let's see. I'd have to give system preferences. It'd be a whole thing. I don't think it's going to work, <laughs> but I'll, I'll link to the thread. So he's like, my friend Patrick McKenzie replies and says, rabbits attending a college seminar on human anatomy. And like what Dolly does is it generates an illustration looks like it was made by, you know, a real artist and that it looks fantastic. And it's on like, it's a bunch of rabbits sitting around a desk, like attending a seminar on think human anatomy. Like there's little things in it where it's weird. And then like uh, Ryan Peterson, who's the CEO of, uh, now I'm forgetting, but the, the a big major shipping company says, a shipping container with solar panels on top and a propeller on one end that can drive through the ocean <laughs> by itself. The self-driving shipping container is driving under the Golden Gate Bridge during a beautiful sunset with dolphins jumping around it. <laughs> oh, wow. And the image is in fact exactly that, <laughs> that the AI Whoa. generates. So. so slightly scary for us creative types out there. Um, definitely keeping an eye on that. <laughs> Yeah. And it's a little weird. Like when you look closely, you're like, all right, this, a bunch of these, it, 
like nails the theme. And then there's some things where you're like, okay, that like isn't perfect, but it's freakishly close to perfect. Scarily good. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of when AI tries to make those crappy YouTube videos. Like you want to, you know what I mean? When you try to see like a a review on an item and you click on the YouTube video, like, oh, it's somebody doing like an unboxing video so I can look at it. And it's literally just images that have been strung together into a video with like some robot voice speaking weirdly about what it Mm. is that you're seeing. And I'm just like, ah, they got me again. And then instantly (laughs) dislike and close it. They must have a terrible retention rate on those videos. <laughs> terrible. I hate them. They're like yeah. like landmines. Well, uh, my have you heard of the day is a follow-on from last week where I told you all that Elon Musk was going to be joining Twitter's board. And today I'm asking if you've heard that he actually declined that position. So that's weird. Like, I don't know what he's doing. He's like messing them around a little bit, I think. But I think this is ultimately for the good. I don't know. The Twitter CEO said that they're still influenced by their largest shareholders. So I think that either way, Elon still gets to have a say in upcoming Twitter stuff. But yeah, it's just interesting that they announced it and then retracted it. (laughs) Well, I think there were a bunch of contingencies on that, right? He wasn't allowed to purchase more than I think 14.5 or 14.9% while he was on the board and 90 days afterwards. And so there was that and other restrictions. The other thing is that as a board member, he would have a fiduciary responsibility to do what's best for the broader shareholders. Mm-hmm. Not just and as a shareholder, you can just do what's best for himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the the 14.5 or, or whatever cap on that is to prevent a full hostile takeover. Yes. So all these other tech companies have a special voting structure where the founders have shares that control all the votes and then everyone else just has shares that get economic benefit. And Twitter does not have that structure. So it's the only one of the major tech companies that's really open to a hostile takeover in this way. Oh, no. So it's basically Elon saying like, oh, yeah, no, we'll play nice. And then he's like, oh, no, I actually don't want to constrain myself to playing within your rules. So I'm going to turn down the board seat and we'll see what happens. Well, also, he did something that he wasn't supposed to. So apparently, if you ever buy, (laughs) if you buy up to 5%, you don't have to declare that to the government. But if you buy anything over 5%, you have to let the Securities and Exchange Commission know that you're going to do that. And he didn't. He just like bought 10% and then told them later. So he did more of an ask for forgiveness, not permission kind of a thing. Sounds very Elon. Elon Musk did that? No way. (laughs) Yeah. You would have thought that like Donald Trump would have figured this out and just done this, you know, a couple of years ago. With Twitter? I think Donald Trump doesn't actually have money. (laughs) (laughs) That's true too. Okay, okay. (laughs) Let's move on to our actual topic for the day, which honestly is is just talking about Twitter more. It's Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I want to set the scene here a little bit because for those of you who don't know, Nathan's our CEO, like I said at the start, but he is also a creator in his own right. He was a creator before ConvertKit existed. In fact, ConvertKit came to be because of a creator side project that Nathan started. So alongside now being our CEO, you have got a YouTube channel, Nathan, you've got a blog, you've got a newsletter, and obviously you're focused on growing your audience for those things. And Twitter is a big part of that. And I know recently you've been focusing a lot on Twitter and in actively trying to grow. I know you've set goals for yourself around that. And so that have been going pretty well from what I have been observing. So we're looking forward to hearing your advice and hearing what's been working for you or not working for you so far. But maybe do you want to start by telling us a little bit about your, like, why Twitter? Why is this the place you've chosen to grow your audience on? Yeah. So 
I tried to grow equally on a bunch of different platforms. And really, I spent most of my you know last few years focused exclusively on ConvertKit. But as we've built out like a team where everyone is leading their uh, areas of the company and, and people really know what they're doing, that's freed up my time to be like, okay, how can I use my position as a creator to get more attention for the company and you know help grow the, grow the company faster? And so I tried out a bunch of things, right? Like you alluded to, I've played a little bit on YouTube. The newsletter has always been kind of home. I tried to learn a little bit on Instagram. And Twitter has always been the one that I feel like I understand the best. And it's been home for me. I also did a podcast a bit. And part of the podcast, I interviewed a bunch of people like Sahil Bloom and Dickie Bush, David Perel, and others who had like grew like crazy on Twitter, you know, to the tune of 200,000 followers in two years kind of thing. I think Dickie Bush in the course of a, um, a year and a half or so went from basically zero to 100,000 followers on Twitter, maybe more. And so I started to learn like, oh, there's patterns in here. This is a, a thing that you can replicate. And so I also realized that I was spending time on a bunch of different platforms and really diluting that effort. Actually, Matt Ragland, who used to work at ConvertKit and is now a good uh, or still a good friend of all of ours and an excellent creator himself. He had this illustration that he did where it was talking about effort going in all these different directions. And he had like one little dash going in 12 different directions. Uh, And then he had a different illustration of like, okay, what if you put that all in a line? And so it's like, here's a tiny bit of effort going 12 directions. And then here's the same amount of effort going into a single direction. And I realized that that's exactly what I was doing of like putting effort into all of these places. And then I should just pick one. Mm. So I have my newsletter at the core of my audience. And then I pick just Twitter as the main place to focus to grow my audience and attract new people. And so that was kind of the decision. I made it in the beginning of December. I think I had just about 40,000 followers at the time. And uh, th- my goal was actually to get to 100,000 followers by... April 1st, which I did not hit. It's a trend for me of like setting big <laughs> goals, not hitting them. Especially goals that are a hundred something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not hitting them, but then ending up with like pretty significant gains. I don't know if it's an Oscar Wilde quote or something like that, but it's, it's something like shoot for the moon. Cause if you missed, you'll end up among the stars. And it's like a very flowery quote, but I, I still like it. And that's the way that I tend to set goals. So today I'm at 66,000 uh, Twitter followers. 66 and a half, actually. That's right. Got to have those, <laughs> those 500. So that's where we've been at. That's been the goal overall. As you alluded to, threads have played a, a big role in it. But I feel like I, through interviewing a bunch of people, talking to friends, I feel like I understand the algorithm pretty well. Hmm. And so you start to learn what works in the system for it. We can get into all of that. What have you learned then along the way? What's your favorite thing that you will, you've learned or perhaps that was you were surprised to discover about the algorithm? where you were like, I was doing it wrong this whole time. <laughs> yeah, so everyone that you see growing a, an audience quickly on Twitter is has a group of some kind. Probably not everyone, but pretty close to it. Has a group of five to 10 friends, think like a mastermind or something like that, where they are all helping to promote each other's content. And so there's something, a couple of things in the algorithm. So that's why I'm not growing on Twitter? That is correct. That's why my 57 (laughs) followers haven't expanded? I don't know if actually that's the number. It might be less than that. That and maybe you're like Miguel and you just never tweet. (laughs) Right. No, I've... Okay. I tweet every once in a while. Yeah. Like every once in three months. Yeah, that is for sure going to work. Definitely keep that up. (laughs) (laughs) Consistency. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So a couple things in this. If you think about the way Twitter ranks 
like the different interactions. So you have a favorite, a reply, a retweet, and a quote tweet. Those are your four interactions that you can have. You, there's also a downvote now, but like... Only some people have that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, if you think about those interactions, all of them trigger the algorithm in some way, right? You've scrolled through your feed and, and seen something of like, oh, Charlie favorited this. And so that's like, it kind of tells you why it's popping up in your feed. And the algorithm has leaned much heavier on all of this stuff over the last 18 months or two years. So a favorite is the lowest level vote. A reply is next, a retweet is above that. And a quote tweet is the biggest endorsement you could give for someone else's content. I think a lot of people think of quote tweets and retweets as basically the same, and they're not at all. Like a quote tweet is the best. A retweet is a little, like is quite a bit lower than that. And a reply is basically neck and neck with a, a like just a simple retweet as far as the endorsement you're giving for that content. And so what everyone's doing in these little communities, you know, or like a group of friends in a text group is they're putting out a piece of really great content, you know, so like a thread they're really proud of, or a tweet they've gotten the copy just right on that they think will hit. And then they're texting their group and saying, Hey, this is live. Will you reply to it? And everyone can go live can go reply right away. And Twitter really emphasizes replies or engagement in the first 10 minutes. Oh, interesting. Because that sees like, oh, people are seeing this, right? And it's getting this engagement right away. And so that's starting to feed the algorithm and say like, okay, there's a lot more that you can do here. Now, if you had that text group and and everyone was retweeting each other all the time, that would feel pretty weird, right? Because like, oh, all you're doing is retweeting this other person. All David Perel does is retweet Sahil Bloom or something like that, right? And it just, it clutters the feed. But a reply doesn't have that. A reply is just friends interacting and engaging on Twitter. And so you can basically have that where you're, you're feeding the conversation rather than, you know, like just muddying the waters or, or quoting that. So what works really well is to have five friends or so that when you put out good content, you send them a text and say, hey, will you give this a reply? And they'll, in the first 10 minutes or so, chime in and say like, oh, you know, really great thought, hadn't phrased it that way. Or even go like, I'll totally disagree Hmm. and, you know, start some discussion. And that feeds the algorithm as well. And that bit of early engagement gives the tweet a much better opportunity to get traction and uh, go from there. So that's my biggest learning. And it works remarkably well. Is what you reply matter? Like if it's just a bunch of people saying, great job or nice job, is that is that ranked in a different way than, uh, you know, say someone disagreeing or or a long paragraph of reply or... Instead of just add a boys. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Like, I prefer the replies that really add to the conversation and the discussion. Yeah. Because then those would drive more engagement. And, and in theory, that's going to drive more. Yeah, basically, Twitter's looking to surface the tweets that drive the most engagement, mm-hmm. you know, and get you to, to keep scrolling, keep spending more time, keep seeing more ads, all of that. So that's why they're optimizing for threads as well, mm. right? Because it's getting, it's pulling people in. Just think about Charlie for the YouTube algorithm, how... You know, it's not view count. They don't care at all about view count. They care about watch time. Watch time. Mm -hmm. And so if you just think about, okay, how are my incentives as a creator aligned with the platform's incentives? You know, and so it's like, okay, well, they want watch time because they want to display more ads. So let me give them watch time. Let me optimize for that metric. And so on Twitter, I mean, a lot of this is speculation, right? Like Twitter hasn't come out and said, this is exactly what works and what doesn't. There's no guide that says, oh, get lots of replies in the first 10 minutes. It's just people saying like, oh, I'm noticing these trends. I'm, mm. I'm learning from it. And so you're basically saying, yeah, if we give them engagement and give them good conversations, Twitter will 
will reward that. I like this question from Melanie. Where can I find people who will actually be willing to do that and not be annoyed when I ask? Oh, that's a good one. I like, I like this question because I can imagine me too. I have this WhatsApp group with a bunch of other design content creators. And I don't know how that will feel if I just started posting my tweets and being like, please reply to this. <laughs> so how did you come to this agreement with your friend? Yeah, but if you were all doing it, yeah, true. it's different. Yeah, if it's mutual. Then who's in your who's in your text group? We share the secrets? Well, I know someone who is because I see him replying to every single one of Nathan's tweets and I'm like, I think of him as Nathan's personal hype man. That is a hill bloom. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I don't have a formal text group with anyone, but the people that I've learned the most from about Twitter are Sahil Bloom, uh, Nick Huber and David Perel. And David's been a friend and a convert customer for a long time. And then Sahil Bloom and, and uh, Nick Huber are more recent friends. Met both of them through either conferences or, or a podcast. And so I, like, they're who I text and uh, they'll do the same. It helps that they both or all three of them have, are wildly successful. So they've built massive accounts. I think Nick Huber has the smallest account out of the three of them at like 180,000 followers or something. But basically finding people who are at that level, who have the same goals, right? If there are like four or five of you who are saying, okay, I want to learn how to grow on Twitter, what's working, what's not. And we'll share those things. And then also say, oh, here's the, here's my latest tweet. And then no one's annoyed, right? Because you're also, you're not asking for a retweet. So it's not a full endorsement. Mm -hmm. You're just asking for like, uh, when someone puts out a book recommendation thread or something like that, you're chiming in and saying, oh, the, love the thread. Here's one that you should add to it, right? And it's just, it's creating more content, more engagement. And that can can do really well. Another series of threads, and I need to put one of these out, but one that does really, really well is the who to follow threads. Do they do well? <laughs> I feel like I often get tagged in those and I'm like, okay, is anyone actually going through and following anyone from this? Because all you're seeing is like a big list of names. Make me not cynical about them. <laughs> yeah. So I guess it, it depends on if the thread takes off, right? There's probably a lot yeah. that don't take off. Mm -hmm. And so if you're getting tagged in that by someone who has 50 followers and... Yeah, by me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if Haley's making the thread, it might not work. But like I've definitely seen some of these take off. There, I had someone on my podcast, um, Caitlin Burgoyne. Oh, wait, sorry. Update, update. I have 120 <laughs> followers. So don't undersell yourself. There we go. <laughs> sorry. I just, I'm sorry. That that was need a necessary interruption. Continue. <laughs> that is very important. So on my podcast earlier this week, episode will come out in a couple of weeks. I interviewed Caitlin Burgoyne, who is a really uh, great like customer researcher. And she has a, a fantastic business called Customer Camp. And she's been growing on Twitter. And I had to ask her like, okay, you got 10,000 followers in December. Because if you look someone up on Social Blade, you can see all their stats, mm. when they gained followers, you know, and all of that. I was like, what happened? Is this one of your tweets going viral? And she's like, no, I got tagged as the first person to follow in a thread that went viral. Oh. And I've seen that as well, where when I've gotten tagged in those threads, like it'll add a couple hundred followers or, or more. In Caitlin's case, she got 10,000 followers from that one thread. But that's definitely the exception. Every time, I don't know, on this show, I always make comparisons to YouTube. And what you're talking about is sounding to me a bit like YouTube mm -hmm. collaborations, which was for a long time, the best way to grow on YouTube was to like 
share each other's audience essentially. So having a group of friends where you reply to each other's tweets is like a Twitter collaboration in a way. And also I had my biggest like spurt of channel growth from an article that recommended my channel as a design YouTube channel to follow. So mm. I guess we're hearing the same thing, but for, for Twitter follower list too. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the trends, I mean, it all overlaps, right? Who yeah. has the audience that you want and then how can you work together, right? If you can bring two audiences together to a single, uh, a single video, right? That's, that's going to get good engagement. Then the YouTube algorithm is going to be like, oh, this is a good video. And it might be that just two different audiences pointed to it and you drove good engagement there. Should we talk about Twitter threads a little more? Because you did, you mentioned threads somewhat. This is something I've seen you do really well. I feel like your threads are like, they read like a blog post, right? As you read through it, it's just that there's like a gap between each paragraph that is perhaps larger than it would be in a blog post. But why threads? What's working for you with them? Any advice for writing one that can actually take off? Yeah. So some people do really well with these one-off tweets, right? Where they're, they have that maybe a comedic voice or a, a really good copywriting or something else where they'll nail a tweet that, that can just hit. They can do it consistently. I've never been able to do that. Like I've had a few random ones that take off, but um, I've, you know, the, the format of 280 characters, I can't hit that consistently. What I found, or I can hit the length, but but something that will pop, you know, mm. and really resonate within that. It's hard to do. I think it's still worth trying, but it's a lot more hit or miss. Uh, I was actually talking to, I'm forgetting her name and this is terrible, but she's a comedian. Oh, Sarah Cooper. Oh, yeah. I was talking to her once years ago. Uh, she did the Trump uh, like impersonation videos that went crazy viral. But I met her at a conference maybe five or six years ago. And she was talking about how she posts a lot of jokes on Twitter. And if it doesn't take off in the first 10 minutes or so, she just deletes it <laughs> and then reworks it and tries to post it again later. Right, so she can test her material quickly like that. That's super interesting to me. But threads are, are interesting because you can really teach something, which that's my format. Mm. But if you look at all my content, it's not entertainment content. It's all education content. The thread lends itself really well to that. So if you go through my threads, the little pro tip in there is that they're all reposts of my blog posts. Every single one of them? I think so. Just about. Wow. Probably eight out of 10, probably. Something like that. So I basically went through the last eight years of blog posts and then rewrote a bunch of them that I thought would do well as threads. So the Ladders of Wealth creation, it's a thread. The Billion Dollar Creator, there's a thread. And then there's even sub-threads within that. So for example, the Ladders of Wealth creation is a 4,000 word blog post. It's quite detailed. But it concludes with a story called the Patel Motel Cartel, which is about how most of the motels in the United States are owned by people of Indian origin. And so I pull that out, make that its own thread. Four or 500 retweets later, that you know added a few thousand followers. And so I have this whole library of content because I don't have time to go and write brand new threads. They take forever. It takes me longer to write a thread than a blog post. Wow. And so I can go in and rework old content. Uh, and that does, does really, really well. Is there a magic number of like comments in the thread? No. You know, like 10, 15, 50, what works, what doesn't? Any more than 25 and the thread gets truncated by Twitter. Oh, right. So I think it's 25, somewhere there, 20 or 25. So you don't want to go longer than that. I acted like I knew that, by the way. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I just learned that like three or four weeks ago. Is that because you tried to write one that was more than 25 and it got cut off? 
Well, because I wrote one that was more than 25 and I sent it to Sahil Bloom for like feedback and ideas. And he's like, dude, this is more than 25 tweets. You got to, you got to truncate it or or it will get truncated. Like you need to rework it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What we did is we split it into two different threads. That was his recommendation. He's like, you sort of switch in here from talking about one thing, to talking about another, just make it two threads and you have content for this week and next week, which is great. One thing that I try to do in threads is I feel like there's this trend where people just went and found a Wikipedia article and rewrote that as a thread, <laughs> whether it's, um, you know, you just like, there's all kinds of interesting thing, things to discover. And so you f- find this thing and you write about it as a thread and it's like, okay, that's interesting. But then it gets kind of old after a while. Mm-hmm. So something that I try to do is write threads that only I could write. Ooh, I like that. Too. Of like, it's from my own experience. It's from something that we've learned running ConvertKit or, or whatever else. It's from data that we have from, you know, the platform or anything else like that, right? It's how we input, like one that I did really well is how we do compensation at ConvertKit, right? It wasn't like five best practices in aggregate from the industry of like how you should do compensation. It's like, here's exactly what we do. Hmm. And that works well. Another thing that I like to do is add as many visuals as possible. So you'll see a lot of graphs, charts, things like that. And then a way that helps to get more of those is I'll go through my old keynote presentations. So things that I've Mm. taught at conferences over the past while, and I will redo those as threads. And then what's really helpful is I'll just screenshot a slide that I've already, you know, I I designed two or three years ago. And then that's a nice visual to drop in there. And okay. And then the last one, I think that blew my mind when I discovered this about Twitter and by discovered it, I mean that Nick Huber told me (laughs) (laughs) is you can repost tweets. So if you write something that does really well, then six months later, repost the same thing. And you know what? It'll do really well. Like just copy your own tweet, not, re- not retweet your yeah, tweet, not retweet but literally it. pasted as a new tweet. Like open up Chrome browser one, Chrome browser two, <laughs> and then copy the thread over and then hit publish. If you have ideas on how to improve it, you know, often some fresh eyes, you're like, oh, I can improve this hook or whatever, like feel free. But that is by no means necessary to uh, Sneaky. to do it. And if you think about it, what works so well is, let's say you had 10,000 followers when you posted the first time. And now six months later, you have 20,000 followers, right? So now here's all these people who didn't see it before, mm. right? And then also the algorithm is going to trigger a whole new set of people, right? We don't read and catch up on like every single tweet and be like, okay, cool. Well, I'm at inbox zero on Twitter. It's really when we go and browse Twitter, we're at the mercy of whatever the algorithm wants to show us. And so it's like, well, it's going to be a totally different group of people. And then you also have that many more people to reply and interact with it, mm. you know, in the six month later version. So like Nick Huber tweets about um, a lot of real estate stuff. And he has this thread that he's done on like how to depreciate assets. Like it's a tax advice real estate thread, basically. It's really good. Like I learned a ton from it. And then what I realized that he has posted a bunch of times. So when I asked him about it, he's like, yeah, I, I post that same thread every three months, like clockwork. And sometimes it'll have a totally different lead-in tweet, but then it's the same thread that follows it. And it now doesn't perform quite as well as it did the first time, but he's on his like 12th time of posting it. He got a lot of mileage out of that thread. <laughs> yeah, he's got a ton. <laughs> so then the last thing in there is that now you make a spreadsheet and track all of your threads and the performance of them and when they were posted. And then that when they're posted really gives you a thought on when you can post it again. And you have notes of like, okay, 
I thought this one would hit. It didn't. I'm going to post it again, but change the hook. And so you can have those kinds of things. So if you wrote 12 threads that you were really proud of that did really well, and you're reposting every, well, let's go every three months, right? Because I think you totally repost every three months. People might get tired of it. But 12 threads that are killer, every three, reposting every three months, you're now set for Twitter. No original content set for life. Not life, but the next couple of years, right? Because you're just reposting threads with a new hook and you have this going on. And once you get to that point, it's fantastic. Like the last week, I did not have time to write a new thread like I wanted to. And so I went back and was like, what's one that I posted three months ago? Oh, how we use convert or how we use direct sales to grow ConvertKit. Reposted it. I think it was like five or 600 retweets, you know, a couple thousand new followers Easy. and 20 <laughs> minutes worth of time because I'm building on what I did before. Well, I think self-plagiarism is the most forgivable of all plagiarisms. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so. <laughs> one thing I wanted to talk about, speaking of like a past tweets, there's one that you did, Nathan, where you were talking about how you did your local newsletter about Boise and how you got it to 10,000 subscribers. I really, really liked that one. And I really liked kind of how you you split it up and kind of did it like how here's how I did it. And then you just made a thread on like the step-by-step on like your journey of getting to 10,000 subscribers. Is that something that you plan on reusing? And um, also just how did that one go in general? I mean, I, there's a lot of uh, engagement with it. Like 37 retweets, I think. A few hundred likes. I really like that one. Yeah, so that's an example of a thread where I'm trying to tell a story rather than just give advice, right? So I'm trying to... That's a thread that, you know, I feel like only I can write because it comes from my life experience. And I, I like those way better than I surveyed the top 47 productivity experts and what they said will shock you, you know, <laughs> or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> I just don't care. I will repost that probably every time I hit a new milestone with the local newsletter. So that was a 10,000 subscriber milestone. I'll probably do a new version of it at 15 or 20,000 subscribers. And then uh, tweak the numbers, tweak the lessons learned, you know, basically rewrite it for the new, the new milestone. But that was, again, that was a 1,500 or 2,000 word blog post that I wrote with all of the details condensed into a much shorter thread. I actually was kind of bummed at that one because it, it didn't, uh, you know, 37 retweets now is sort of like, okay, it got a little bit of traction. But I'm really trying to target like three to 400 retweets now. Yeah, I was surprised that one didn't get more engagement. So Miguel was impressed, but you weren't. <laughs> uh, listen, I have 22 followers, so... Oh, uh, look who's the novice now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think most of those are just like probably people that are just like, oh, upload your contacts. Oh, I knew you from high school kind of a thing. So, eh, whatever. But I really like that one. And I was surprised it didn't get more. But I was still very impressed because, I mean, personally, the bar on Twitter for me is very low, but... But one thing I like about the doing the thread thing, so at first I used to think, oh, this is just somebody taking something that they, you can only do 240 times. So this is just somebody just like highlighting however many sentences you can fit into 240, pasting it, doing the next few sentences, pasting it. And it's just like, you're sort of like bastardizing Twitter to make it meet like what should be a medium post or something. So, but I like that you actually take each individual thread as like kind of like a mini chapter in a story. And each one of it is kind of like its own little nugget. And you could stop at any point and still feel like you got something out of it. And it's not like contingent on the fact that you have to read this thing all the way to the end. And there's like fragmented sentences and like at one individual tweet might not make a lot of sense because you need to read the three parts of the thread before it to understand this thread. And yeah. Yeah. So 
because you see a lot of people do threads where they just don't get any traction. And usually it's because they copied and pasted. By the way, a bunch of geese landed on the on the roof of my tiny house <laughs> office and they are super loud. So <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Let's see. So you'll see these threads where you could tell it's not adapted to the format. Mm. And so a couple things I try to do is I want every tweet, just like you said, Miguel, to be standalone, right? It should work by itself. I want to add media and images to break things up. I actually used to think this was really important. And I would do it in all of my threads of like, keep them really visually interesting. So at least every third tweet at a minimum would have an image. Sahil Bloom does not do that. And he absolutely kills it. And he thinks that my philosophy on that is overrated. And <laughs> he's like, if you have a good image to add, like, sure, by all means do it. But it's not... Not a must. Not a must. So I definitely try to make each tweet something that you could, you know, retweet or share on its own. Like in the direct sales thread, there's one on... There's actually a bunch of individual tweets that you'll see. If the overall thread has 500 retweets, you know, these sub tweets within it will have 20 or 30, right? And people will engage with that or disagree with it. There's one on... So there's a thread on uh, company culture in a remote team that I've done a couple of times. The first time that I did it, it was like seven ideas for company culture in a remote team. The next time we bumped it up to 10 because I thought of a few more. <laughs> these are a lot of things that we do at ConvertKit. But I know that like, I think it's the sixth one in there is about the unsolicited feedback that we do at ConvertKit. And that one always... So the, the thread takes off. Always. I've done it twice. The thread takes off. It does well. And then usually the second day, that one tweet starts to get picked up by a whole bunch of people who are saying like, this is horrible. It's a terrible company. I never <laughs> want to work there. And it's super interesting because it always happens. And then a bunch more people find the original thread and people like, like it and engage with the whole thing. And so you get that. There's like different worlds in Twitter where after you post something, it goes to like your immediate and close friends. Then it starts to get traction and it goes to like people who know you, they're in your circles, but they might not be following you yet. And then a while after that, it goes to like the broader world. And that's when like all the haters show up. And it's usually <laughs> somewhere between like, I don't know, 18 and 36 hours after posting the thread that all the replies turn to garbage. And when you can click on a reply and be like, oh, nope, you're not following me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's where you get into people where it's like, oh, you're what's wrong with the world because of <laughs> capitalism, right? And it's like, I don't think this is one of my followers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like the more fringe it gets, the more people feel comfortable just bashing an idea, I think. Yep. Oh, totally. And so you get into those circles. Well, thank you, Nathan. This is so much good advice. And I know that you have a meeting to go to next. And so we don't <laughs> want to keep you because you have CEO things to do, as we like to say about Nathan's work. But loads of great things here. I honestly, listening to this and listening to all the work you've put into Twitter, I feel really proud of the, what, like 26,000 followers I've managed to grow in my 10 years on the platform without thinking about this stuff. But I want to start. I feel like I want to grow there because it's probably my favorite of the social medias. I think where it works the best is for either two things, a creator who can like dedicate a ton of time to it and say, this is my primary channel. This is what I'm really going to emphasize. Mm -hmm. Or the creator who has spent a lot of time, the last 10 years creating content on other platforms and has a strong point of view and uh, life experience and all of that and wants to bring that over. So if you go through all your YouTube videos and... I have like 400 and something of those. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so you're like, which ones would work well as threads? What are the themes across this? 
that's a lot better. And then you don't fall into the trap of like, uh, what content can I make? Mm -hmm. Let me go to Wikipedia and start copying and pasting stuff. No, no, no. That I will never do that. I promise you. <laughs> but what I might do, Nathan, is send you a link and be like, hey, can you reply to the student that I tried out? Hey, <laughs> you absolutely should. You can, you can add me. I have 120 followers. So thanks, Haley. I'll take you up on that. What about you, Miguel? You want to volunteer with your 22? Yeah, I'll do it. All, <laughs> all my 22 followers are going to be shocked and amazed at everything. Great. It's going to be great. Okay. Love it. Before we end, we have a listener shout out today, which I'm really excited about. We had a bunch of submissions Woo! from last time when us three shared our own things we're proud of as creators. Uh, so yeah, keep on sending in your little wins, convert k.it slash listener shout out. But today I want to shout out Rachel Brown. Rachel is a bookstagrammer. Do you all know what a bookstagrammer is? It's a someone who is an Instagram influencer who posts about books and it's a whole big niche. That would have been my guest. Yep. <laughs> and um, Rachel has 226 followers, but she's just been started to get sent advanced reader copies of books from publishers. Mm. So she gets to read them in advance and share a review and things like that. And so that's really exciting. Congrats, Rachel, on that. You can follow her on Instagram at books.on.deck. And I think it's pretty cool of the publishers to see value in Rachel's account, you know, having 226 followers. She's obviously building up a solid niche with her audience. So well done. That's well great. Done to Rachel. Woo. We should also shout out Nathan's Twitter, I guess, since we've been talking about it this whole episode. You can follow him at twitter.com slash Nathan Barry and see all these threads and tweets that he's talking about in action. Haley, you want to tell us about what's coming up next week? Yes. Has Henry not been? I've talked about Henry a lot on this podcast, but Henry Tong, who is my counterpart in Creator Sessions, and is a creator in his own right is going to come on and we are going to talk about creating uh, videos for YouTube. And he also uh, handles all the projects for I Am A Creator. So he's got a wealth of knowledge on the topic. So we're going to talk about making videos for YouTube. And I'm sure Charlie will have a few things to say. Oh, you know, I have thoughts <laughs> about that. And yeah, it'll be great. Come hang out with me, Henry. Yeah, You'll get to see that Henry's a real person, not just someone that Haley mentions from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And uh, we'll see you back here next week. Thank you, Mr. Barry. Bye. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Future Belongs to Creators. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe so that new episodes appear in your podcast feed every week. And while you're at it, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. If you want to join us live for the next recording, you'll find us on ConvertKit's YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash ConvertKit every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern. This show, like everything we do at ConvertKit, is made for creators by creators. We're on a mission to help creators like you earn a living online, and we make software that helps you build and connect with an audience of loyal fans. ConvertKit is the best way to launch or grow your next creative project. So to start building your audience, go to convertkit.com slash free and create a free account. We're looking forward to helping you on your creator journey.